So uh, again, we're really glad you guys are here. Thanks for bearing with us. If, if you're not uh, from this community, you might not have known anything about it, but it's a pretty big deal around here. Uh, my title tonight, I don't have a really long message, but I have a really interesting message tonight, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's called this, The Gambler. Um, as I have continued in my ministry, I haven't been in the ministry a super long time, I guess eight years or something uh, as far as full-time, but I've been really surprised. I'm a sermon junkie. So I listen to probably uh, between 15 and 20 sermons a week would be my honest guess. I'm just always listening to them. Bam, bam, bam. Always. I've got so many to listen to. I'm always trying. I even listen to them on, on faster speed. That way I can get through them all. One and a quarter. You can handle it. <laughs> but uh, one thing that I've been really surprised at as I've continued to understand and see different people preaching in lots of different cultures is how rare in the Christian community people really... Uh, preach from the teachings of Jesus. You know what I mean? That seems like that should be so, this is like so weird, but I think, uh, and, he, and even when people do preach from the teachings of Jesus, they'll end up preaching like in really safe places, like the, the teachings of Jesus they understand. We preach a lot of Paul, probably 80% Paul is my guess, 80% Paul, maybe 10% Old Testament, 10%, uh, 10% the teachings of Jesus, but just not a lot. And so I, I think that that is, in a lot of ways, backwards. And one thing that I'm endeavoring to do, especially in this year and in this ministry, is I just want to come to the place where I take the words of Jesus as the most serious of all the words. You know, because I really believe this, that Jesus is, Jesus is the only true picture that we have of God. And so when he says something, if, if you ever find yourself in the Bible and you feel like Jesus and the Old Testament are like disagreeing with each other, you should go with Jesus. You know, and if you ever feel like Paul and Jesus are disagreeing, just go with Jesus. Because I think his words are the most true, uh, the most beautiful, and the thing that we as Christians need to really cling to. And so it's just a, a challenge that for me is to always look at the teachings of Jesus. Some, some, cult, some issue would come up in culture and, uh, you know, people are trying to decide what to do. And so a lot of preachers will go and find scriptures that they think will maybe like uh, verify the idea that they already have. Um, but if someone were to come in and ask this question, like, well, what did Jesus think about that? I think oftentimes the response would be like, well, that's weird. I never thought about that. You know, for some reason, because his, I think the way that he talks, his ministry was just so challenging and so different uh, from the way that we can understand. And oftentimes he comes and gives such a different paradigm uh, than people would normally have. So I think that's one of the reasons that Jesus is really beautiful. And of course, oftentimes he'll come and he just says stuff. He'll just say something that we're supposed to do. He'll say something that's true. But oftentimes I would say one of the primary ways that Jesus teaches is through his parables. I think there's something like 48 parables uh, all throughout the Bible. And the idea of parables, these are little stories that Jesus told. And the idea and the point of them is that they would come and they would steal us away from our blindness. Like maybe it would steal us away from the things that we already thought we knew were true. I don't know if you've ever done this, but when I read the Bible, I always tend to associate with the good guy. Like, of course I'm the good guy here. You know, you read some story about the Israelites and the Babylonians or the Israelites and the Philistines. And you're like, of course I'm the Israelites. Jesus is, look how good, faithful. You know, you get all the promises from Jesus, from the Israelites. It's like, obviously that's the part that applies to me. But the, the stories of Jesus are so different in that they come and they like trick you when you come and you assume that you're always the good guy in the story and then they have a way of twisting and turning and that you find yourself that maybe this is even a type of uh, correction that Jesus would come and offer. Jesus uh, comes and brings his parables to challenge the things that we think we know. 
And I think for Christians, especially people who have been doing the Christian thing for a really long time, the challenge is to not get to a place where we feel like we already know all the things. You know what I mean? Like we don't have to, I, I, just, I just feel this even as a pastor, I don't want to be in a rush to arrive at what I'm positive is the truth. Like I want to continue to be a disciple where I'm continuing to learn and I appreciate new ways of thinking, new ways of understanding, and those don't have to be scary uh, to me. Quote Alexander Pope, he was an 18th century poet. He says this, some people will never learn anything for this reason because they understand, understand everything too soon. I think that's so brilliant and so true that oftentimes people just like, it takes you, they feel like it takes you three months to understand all the Bible stuff and then you stop learning and then you just start defending. You start defending what you think you already know instead of learning uh, what we're supposed to maybe learn. We start thinking of, of truth as simply something we have found. It's like, boom, whew, so glad that was over. Now I, now I have to stop learning and then we end up filing it all under things I know. Just got all of these things that I know. Well, the parables of Jesus come and they really are designed to challenge us uh, in the way that we think we see the world. And so I want to talk about a parable tonight that I think is really cool and really uh, fun. It's the parable of the dishonest manager. Be honest, raise your hand, and if you're willing to say, I have no idea what that means. The parable, oh my gosh, you guys are brilliant. Okay, thank you, a few of you. Thank you, thank you, Jay. The parable of the dishonest uh, manager. So it's a really cool story. It's in Luke 16. And so I'm going to tell you the story, but I need to just say one thing so your mind doesn't blow when you hear this amazingly strange and bizarre parable. So this parable, this is not a morality story. So when Jesus is telling you this, what he's not trying to do, he's not trying to teach you about something moral that you're supposed to do. If you might think, you know, he tells a story and then you say, what's the moral of the story? Well, in this, in this case, it's nothing. There is no moral uh, to this story. Jesus is not trying to teach you how to behave. Jesus in this parable is trying to teach you something about the strange world of grace. So here we go. Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. Verse two, so he summoned him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. He's getting fired. Verse three, then the manager said to himself, what will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Verse four, I have decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. This is where the story gets weird. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of oil, of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Verse seven, then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. Now you can see that this is probably a wicked man, right? It's about to get scolded. Listen to this. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. So that's the parable. Isn't that weird? Do you guys think that's so weird? I personally find that parable bizarre. Uh, For years, I've read this parable thousands of times and thousands of times my head has just stopped and I just kind of like move on 
because it's such a weird uh, story uh, to, help, to tell. So what to say about this parable? Well, there's lots of things really quick before, before we get into the explanation. Uh, understand that what's happening here is this is the parable that immediately follows the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, which is probably almost undoubtedly the most famous parable of Jesus. And it's followed by what is almost definitely the least popular of all of Jesus' parables and almost definitely the most confusing. I, in fact, I, I, I'm, I was trying to think, I don't think I've heard a single sermon ever preached on this story. As weird, because it's just, so, it's just like too much. It's too, it's too confusing uh, to hear what's uh, going on, but it's immediately following the story of the prodigal son, and these two stories in the language of Jesus, they're really linked together. You could almost say like part A and part B. It's a bummer that they put a new chapter in there. They kicked it out into chapter 16. Of course, that was all added after the fact, so none of that is necessarily inspired, but uh, it's a bummer that that happened because maybe if they were in the same chapter, it might help us kind of understand a little bit. So I'm going to link them both together just so you can see really quickly. This is the end of the parable of the prodigal son right into uh, the beginning of this story. Luke chapter 15, verse 32 and I bet you recognize this. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. The very next verse, listen to this. Then Jesus said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. See, it's the next sentence. Nobody adds any commentary. There's nothing going on between these two stories. It's simply part A and part B. And at first glance, they have nothing to do with each other. At first glance, they're just totally bizarre stories. You know, like, uh, it's kind of weird. One, you see the sweet story of this loving dad and his son, and his son comes home. And then the second is like a sneaky story about a dishonest manager who somehow gets complimented uh, for being a crook. And so uh, Jesus was a great storyteller. In fact, I'm convinced that if he wasn't doing the whole Messiah thing, he could be like an amazing author because he's so brilliant in the way that he tells stories. So there's a lot of similarities between these two stories. Just want to point out a few to you really quick between the the parable of the prodigal son and the dishonest manager. Here we go. Both uh, betray someone's trust. Can you think about that? The prodigal son, he betrays his dad's trust. And in the second story, he betrays his uh, boss's trust. Both misuse someone's possessions. See, he squanders his dad's possessions. And in the second story, he squanders his boss's possessions. Both are failures. One, in the first story, he's a, being, he's a failure at uh, being a son. And in the sex, second story, he is a failure at being an employee. And lastly, and maybe most important, both are saved by mercy or not at all. See, both of the, both of the men are in a lot of trouble. Both of the men have got themselves in a horrifically bad situation, and the only chance they have is being saved by uh, mercy. In the end, one receives an unexpected party, and the other receives an unexpected compliment. And they're both, both of these stories are communicating the strange world of grace. And neither story is trying to teach you how you are supposed to act. You notice that? Like the prodigal son is teaching you something, not about you, uh, it's teaching you something about God. And this story is the same way. Brief summary of the, the, uh, the story in case you're thinking, what? What kind of story? Okay, here it goes. The story is this. There was a rich man. I don't know if you've ever noticed that a lot of parables start this way. There was once a rich man. And so this rich man, he has lots of land. That's how he's so rich. He's got a ton of land to farm. And so what he does is he ends up uh, leasing it out to farmers, and they're able to build crops on this land. 
And so, uh, so they're making money. They're producing crops on the land that the uh, manager guy owns. And he, is, uh, he receives his rent in the form of produce. So like one, they were talking about how he receives uh, olive oil. And in another, it talks about how he receives wheat. So let's call this man, for the sake of our story, we're going to call him Mr. Thompson. Okay, so Mr. Thompson is here. He's incredibly successful. He's so successful that he has to hire a manager to kind of handle his affairs. Not an uncommon thing for landlords today, but he has to hire someone to take care of all this stuff, to collect his rent, to talk to his tenants, all of those different things. And we're gonna call that guy George. Okay, so you've got Mr. Thompson, who's the boss, and then you've got George. Well, George turns out to be a crook. Uh, it, it, uh, he, he comes and it, the Bible says this, that he's wasting the possessions of, uh, Mr. Thompson. Really what this most likely is, it's like some sort of weird embezzlement scheme. So he's like skimming off the top. He's taking a little bit of the oil. He's taking a little bit of the wheat and he's got like a side business where he's selling a little bit uh, of this on his own for some extra money and he gets busted which is no big surprise. And so Mr. Thompson calls George into the office and says this, Hey, look, I know what you've been doing. I know that you've been stealing from me, so you're fired. And you know what? Not only are you fired, I need to get a complete account of the books so I can see what the heck you've been doing uh, this whole time. So George begins to panic. He doesn't know what to do. The Bible says that he says this, well, I'm too weak to dig and I'm too proud to beg. So he says, what am I going to do? I'm in an incredibly bad situation. So instead, George decides, he, remember, he's a swindler. So he decides to pull off one last trick. But in this particular case, it's brilliant because he's super, uh, super smart. Even at the end, you can remember, if you'll recall, Mr. Thompson ends up complimenting him because he's so smart and so sneaky. In fact, a lot of translations will say he was so, he acted shrewdly, but really the Bible translators were just chicken. What the word they should have translated it to was wise. It's the same word when Jesus talks about the wise man who built his house on the rock. It's that same word. So he says, man, now this guy was incredibly wise. So here's the scheme that George decides he's going to be involved uh, in. He goes to one of the tenants and says, hey, how how much do you pay Mr. Thompson? And the guy says, well, I pay him 100 jugs of olive oil a year, 100 jugs. And he says, you know what you should do? Well, let's go. We, I've been talking to Mr. Thompson, and he knows times are tough. You know, people are struggling just to get by. So why don't you go? And from now on, you just have to pay Mr. Thompson 50. So I'm sure, I'm sure you can imagine what the man would think. Oh, my God, that's the best news I've heard all day. Well, t- I mean, like you made my whole family, you like changed our life. And so tell Mr. Thompson that he's incredibly generous. He's incredibly kind. He's incredibly gracious. Tell him, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And George says, don't worry about it. Just keep, just remember me. Uh, And then, so he goes to the next guy and he says, he says, how much, how much do you pay Mr. Thompson a year? And he says, well, I pay him 50 containers of wheat. And he says, well, I've talked to Mr. Thompson. He knows times are tough. So why don't you, why don't you go and in your books, change that to just pay him 80 per year? Oh my God, that's the best news I've ever heard. That's incredible. Thank you so much. Tell Mr. Thompson. Thing. He says, don't worry about it. You just keep me in mind if things ever change. And so, uh, so what's he doing? I, I wrote it down in a very weird sentence, but I hope you can understand. Uh, he's, go to my next slide. Uh, George, he's getting the approval of others. How? By saying that he and Mr. Thompson had their best interests in mind. That's one. And two, by lowering their rent. So he was getting people to love him 
by lowering their rent, even though he was unauthorized to do it. And his vision was this, not that he would be rich. For some reason, I used to think they were like writing him checks or something. You know what I mean? Like he was getting the oil. Like there's no, there's no sign of that. The reason he said he was doing this is so that he would be welcomed into people's homes is what the text says. So it's amazing that he, what he's doing is he's trying to get people to love him so that when he becomes unemployed, he would just be able to live from house to house to house to house to house and he wouldn't have to work. So that's the very weird scheme. But imagine if it happened to you. Imagine if you were paying rent and let's say you pay, I don't know, 800 bucks a month. And so someone were to come and say, look, I know times are hard. So look, we're going to talk to, I talked to your manager and he says from now on, you just pay 400 bucks a month. We'll just call it even. You'd probably say, oh my God, that's the best news ever. I can't, I can't believe that. That changes my life in a profound way. In fact, you might, I wonder if you would even be willing to have a party. Maybe you would even say a toast to Mr. Thompson, the most generous man in the entire world. Um, and this is what's uh, happening, and here's where it kind of gets brilliant, because you might be thinking, well, how is that, how is that even going to work? Because he knows, like, what's to stop Mr. Thompson from just saying that guy was fired and he's a lunatic? You know what I mean? Um, so George is really sneaky. Mr. Thompson finds out, which of course uh, he does, but George is a gambler. In fact, you could say George is the gambler. Here's the gamble. If he pulls this off, he'll be saved and he'll be able to live from house to house to house to house. If he doesn't pull this off, everyone's going to know he's a crook, and he'll probably go to jail. So uh, Mr. Thompson, though, the boss, he has this really unbelievable choice. Here's the choice. Number one, he could throw George in jail and go around and tell everyone that their rent didn't actually go down. Sorry, total fake out. Uh, George was unauthorized. That's option number one. Number two is he could basically say, Dang, that George, he sure is sneaky. Um, He sure is clever. He's kind of put me in a corner here. Well, dang it, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to enjoy my new reputation as being kind and generous and merciful. And that's what he did. And it's a really high stakes gamble. You can see what happens uh, here. Uh, The gamble is this. He's gambling on whether or not Mr. Thompson is generous. So the story changes not from what is George doing to who is Mr. Thompson? Like, what is this guy uh, kind of like? George, my next slide, George gambled everything on the grace and mercy of Mr. Thompson, and he won. And then you might be thinking, huh? Like, what? I don't even get it. And if you're still looking at this story in total bewilderment, like you have no idea what's even happening, it might be because you're still looking for this to be some sort of morality tale. You're still looking for George to tell you how to behave. George is not going to tell you how to behave. It's just Mr. Thompson who is trying to teach you something about who God is. It's trying to teach you something about the strange world of grace. In fact, if I was to try to explain this parable to, let's say, a 12-year-old, it's a very complex story, I know, but if I was to try to explain it to a 12-year-old, it might be something like this. My next slide. George isn't teaching you how to behave. Mr. Thompson is teaching you something about God. Or maybe another way of saying that is this. George isn't being complimented for being a crook. He's complimented for gambling on the goodness of Mr. Thompson. So, of course, if you can think and even appreciate a little bit of backstory and what's happening here, Jesus is always getting in trouble with religious people because he's always, he does this really nasty habit that they hate, which is he's always eating with really famous, well-known, established sinners. 
and not just lightweight ones, the big guys. You know what I mean? Like the super well-known famous sinners and the Pharisees would look on at Jesus with scorn. They would say things like this, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus comes and he responds in the way that he usually does is he tells stories. He tells the story of a lost sheep, of a lost coin, of a lost son. These are communicating his value for even unlovely people. And then he tells this story about the dishonest manager. It's one of the reasons I think maybe it helps explain why Jesus was so popular with self-proclaimed sinners. See, it's it's interesting. It it would appear that to be around Jesus and being a self-proclaimed horrific sinner is really easy, but to be around Jesus and be uh, a self-righteous person is almost always hard. It it seems like as if around Jesus, sinners have the advantage over self-righteous people. And the reason is this. It's because sinners know that their only option is to throw themselves completely on the mercy of God. And, and they know that they will be saved by grace or they won't be saved at all. Just like George. But good people, on the other hand, they don't feel the need to gamble on grace because they feel pretty good about their odds. Next slide. Grace is good news for people who know they need it and bad news for people who don't know they need it. That's so true. Grace is good news for people who know they need it, and it's bad news for people who don't know they need it. Here's a weird example, and I am not going political here. It's just a perfect example. So think whatever you want about what I'm about to say, but just for example, okay, let's talk about immigration. Think whatever you want, but I'm just saying, let's pretend, let's pretend that there was a a nation, let's say it's the U.S., and they were to say, here's what we're going to do from here on out, every immigrant gets amnesty. So you're here illegally, that's fine. Total amnesty. You can all stay. And um, who would be happy about that? The immigrant. Of course, you know what I mean? Because they would be the people who would know that the only way that I have any shot of even being here is if somebody would come and throw me a bone. And in the same way, this is kind of like the same uh, story that Jesus comes and says, even guys like George can come and gamble on my goodness and they won't be disappointed. And grace always, always tastes sweet to the sinner and it always tastes bitter to the self-righteous. Um, I, I think this, I quote, Reverend Joseph uh, Beach, he's a pastor in Denver. He's really cool. He says this, I never bet against the mercy of God. I don't like my odds. I love that. I never bet against the mercy of God. I don't like my odds. And when it comes to the Christian faith, I'm sure you probably know this. There's a lot of different opinions. There's a lot of different opinions about where, where God's mercy comes in and where God's judgment would come in and where, like, what is Jesus's wrath? Like, what's all of that about? You know what I mean? And like, where, who is in, who's out? There's all of these different conversations. A mentor of mine, Andrew, Andrew Womack, when I was growing up, he said, he said this, as pastors, so this is true for you as Christians, he says, we always want to be as accurate as possible. So we want to, we want to like hit the truth right on the head. We want to be perfect. But he says, when in doubt, err on the side of mercy rather than on the side of judgment. And that's just smart. That's just smart because it just seems like Jesus a little bit more. You know what I mean? Because, because he was so much more merciful than people were ever expecting him to be. So we want, we want to always be truthful. We always want to, to like honor the text. We want to honor what he says. But if there's ever a question, I'm just fine with being somebody who tends to be more merciful rather than somebody who tends to be more judgmental. And I feel like in being that, I'm actually honoring Jesus because I think that's how he was. Uh, George bet on the goodness of Mr. Thompson 
any one big. So read, let's read the end. This is the last verse, verse 8 of the parable. It's, the, it's maybe the weirdest verse, but it says this. And his master, this is Mr. Thompson, commanded the dishonest manager, George, because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the sons of light. So you might be thinking, oh, great, I totally lost again. All he's saying, yeah, I know, I feel the same way. All he's saying is this, there's certainly a sense in the kingdom of God where sinners are smarter than self-righteous people. And he, he calls them the sons of light. These are, these are people who tend to lean on their own goodness. And he's saying they're not as smart as they think they are. Sinners know they need mercy, um, but the sons of light, they're just not as smart as they think they are because they don't understand how desperately in need they are of my mercy. Maybe you could sum up the evening with this simple statement. It's smarter to bet on God's mercy than on your goodness. It's smarter to bet on God's mercy than on your goodness. You know, because Christianity is not a religion where do-gooders get by by doing good. There are a lot of religions that are like that. You know what I mean? Where it's like, you're fine as long as you're like a pretty good guy. That's just not Christianity. That's just not the idea here. It's not, it's not, about, it's not about being better than your neighbor and thus God would look on you favorably. It's not that, even though that is the religion that the Pharisees wanted, even though that's the religion that the other brother wanted in the parable of the prodigal son. But Jesus comes in his parable like he always does. And he says, actually, it's more like the opposite. It's, it's, it's the wise ones are the ones who really know they need mercy. And that's the story we're going to prepare for uh, communion. Did you like the story? Yeah, I think it's cool. Okay. As we prepare uh, for communion, this is just something that we do every week. We think it's really important really uh, what we're about here. I've got a couple takeaways for you. If you're kind of like, what does that have to do with me? It's 2016. Who cares about all this? Uh, a couple takeaways for you. Takeaway number one from, this, from the story is this. We miss the heart of Christianity the moment we lean on our own goodness. We miss the heart of Christianity the moment we lean on our own goodness. And that's, while that seems like it's a bit of a challenge, it's actually an encouragement because no matter how broken you are tonight, no matter how frustrated you are tonight, no matter how um, outcast you feel, no matter how hypocritical you feel by even being in this room, uh, the truth of the matter is Jesus comes and he says this, that you have just as much right to be here as anybody else. It's, a, it's an amazing paradox of the Christian faith is that you're invited to the table, even though you've, you like haven't prayed in five years, you're invited to the table of Jesus to sit right next to the Billy Grahams and the Mother Teresa's. I know it's so, that's so scandalous, but it's so true. Takeaway number two is this. As we follow Jesus, we seek to offer his strange grace to others. The strange grace that makes no sense, that makes our heads stop. So much of the Christian faith is really about looking at other people and just deciding beforehand, I'm just gonna treat people better than they deserve to be treated. That's just what we do. That's just like, that's our whole gig. And when it comes, so when it comes to our marriages, when it comes to our bosses, when it comes to people on the road, when it comes to people on the rest, you know what I mean? There's just, the world will teach you that it's like tit for tat. Jesus said it like this, eye for an eye. You're rude. And so I have the right to be rude. But Jesus comes in and he, he shows us, he teaches us, but he also, even more than teaches us, he shows us um, about the strange world of grace. 
where what we are called to do, each and every one of us, is we treat people better than they treat us. I remember early on when I was, uh, we were in premarital class, I had a great friend, John Woods, he's here, he's just like a stud of the faith. He says, he says this, in my, in my relationship, he said, in my marriage, he said, I just always try to be more loving to my wife than she is to me. It's like, oh my God, like how, that's such a high calling, you know what I mean? Because I'm used to like, Jordan's not being loving, so I can be not, you know what I mean? Like it's just same eye for an eye craziness that the world teaches us. But the message of Jesus comes and he offers us a different way. Where we, we follow Jesus and we seek to offer his strange grace where we commend people for coming in and receiving mercy and we treat people better than they deserve. So tonight, if you, as I close, if you feel far from God, I know that there's people in the, in the room tonight that feel like they are far from God. This is the amazing scandal of grace is that Jesus comes and he offers you a seat at his table. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter where you literally just came from, the scandal of grace is that he comes and he invites you to his table all the same. So we come and we receive communion. We receive his invitation. We come and we eat the bread and we drink from the cup. And it's not like meeting Jesus. It is meeting Jesus. This is what he says, we, one of the things that we can do to come and meet with him. So it's not like he's here. He's here. And the only thing that can stop you from encountering Jesus in the bread and in the wine is just your choice. It's just you not being present for it. But this is one of those moments where he is wanting to come and meet with you. So you come and you don't come, you don't come as the hero of the story. No, you come as the crook. You come as the crook who has no choice but to come and gamble on the grace of God. And he comes and he meets you there. And you're just so overcome because it's not about your goodness. It's about the kindness of Mr. Thompson. It's about the kindness of of Jesus Christ. That's why I like, I like thinking of the table uh, of the Lord as the great equalizer. Makes everybody the same. It brings, it brings the proud down and it brings the humble up and it makes us all peers. And so when we come to the table, it's not pastors, congregants, sinners, saints. No, it's all, it's all just dinner guests. It's all, it's all people who've just been invited uh, to his table. And, we just re- and so we just receive him. Brennan Manning, he's a, a pastor, great or crazy guy, Catholic priest guy. You all know, know him. I love him. I've got a quote. It's not on the screen, but he says this. The good news of the gospel of grace cries out. We are all equally privileged, but unentitled beggars at the door of God's mercy. We're all equally privileged, but we're all equally unentitled. And so as we pass... Uh, communion, just hold on to it and then we'll take it together. But what I want you to do is I want you to, if you could in your heart, just spend a minute with God. I want you to find your way back to gratitude. I think gratitude is something that we are all capable of and something that we all uh, live in far too off, too seldom. You know what I mean? Like there's Every single one of us, we all have challenges, we all have trials, and we all have things to be grateful for. And, and so I don't know what that would be. And maybe you could even think of something. Maybe you could think of a couple things. What is it? What, how has God been good to you? And if you find your way back, I just think the moment gratitude comes in, um, just the feeling of you deserve, deserve, that just all goes out the window. 
You know what I mean? Like expectation where I'm expected to be treated. If gratitude comes into your heart, I just think all the fear, the negativity, the cynicism would go out. So just find that. What is that for you? Uh, maybe can you think of can you think of your family tonight? Can you think about can you think about just the way that God continually treats you? Can you think of something beautiful that you see God doing that you're that you're a part of? Can you see? I don't know what it is for you. Can you see new even even in death? that we've experienced this past week, can you see new life and be grateful for it? Because we all have the ability to see the work of God and to be grateful. So just spend a minute finding your way to gratitude and then we'll take communion together. This is the invitation that's on the screen. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long. 
you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So come to the table. So Jesus Christ, we come to the table as grateful people, not as people who feel that we deserve to be here, but just people who gamble on the mercy of God. And you meet us here. So we thank you. And tonight, Lord, we remember your death. We proclaim your resurrection and we await your return. We remember your death. We proclaim your resurrection and we await your return. So let's eat the bread and drink from the cup together. to Jesus Christ. Tonight we come to your table. People who want to meet with you. We believe that here with you, we find hope. And here with you, we find meaning. Here with you, we find peace. And so we just rest in that. We breathe in that all the challenges of this world, we come here and we hide under you. We find safety. Bring us strength, Lord. Bring us peace, Lord. And bring us joy. May we, be always, may we always be people who can look at you and look at this world with eyes of gratitude seeing a world of beauty seeing a world this is just a privilege you know you just, we just don't get a million of these <laughs> whatever that is we don't we don't get a million of these so help us to be here and to appreciate what we have and what you've given us your amazing grace your amazing love Lord and we say thank you for that it's in your son's precious name we, uh, we say